0: All right, welcome. Hope you all have some notes there. And uh, We'll begin looking, first of all, with our quiz. Quiz, you know. So fortunately for Paul, he could choose whether to go to be with Christ or remain and continue to labor for Christ. False. False. You he debates whether, which would be better, but ultimately he doesn't have any... Choice of self. God is in control of that for all of us. Perseverance in the faith is both the requirement for Christians and an evidence of true faith. What does that even mean by that? <laughs> when we start reading about requirement for Christians, you know, we wonder about requirement for what? What does that, uh, what does that mean? Um, which required of. Yeah, no required of Christians is, it. Yeah, a project that you worked Yeah. Is, Obviously, works true. aren't required to be saved. You don't have to have works in the sense of perseverance in that sense. But it is uh, uh, an, uh, an essential aspect of true, genuine Christianity, uh, true evidence of Christian faith. Three, opposition to our cause as Christians, is probably an inevitable result of standing for the gospel. True, True, it is, isn't it? Because there's hostility towards the gospel. Naturally, people don't want to be told, we don't want to be told that we are sinful, we're rebellious, and uh, we're sinners. That's not language that people want to hear, ultimately. Our suffering is ultimately from the hand of God. True, ultimately, God's in control, what Paul said, it's been granted to you, remember? It's been granted to you to suffer for him. So, even in the case of Job, yeah, the devil was used by God, but God was in control of Job's suffering. The Philippians were probably being persecuted by Jewish opponents of Paul. Well, we haven't talked about any Jewish opponents yet. That does come up, but we talked about when Paul says, you have seen in me, you saw the kind of suffering that I had. Your suffering is the same suffering as I had and I have now. So we think that's Roman opposition because he says... I see the suffering that you're going through, and it's the same suffering I had when I was at Philippi. That was by the governmental authorities. And you see now in me, in Rome. So the opposition he's probably talking about right here is uh, Roman governmental uh, uh, opposition. All right. So we are looking at uh, this section a call to sanctification, which is the main section in Philippians one twenty-seven through 2.30. We're looking at the duties of Christian citizenship. It's because Paul uh, says, conduct yourselves. And the word he uses there, you remember, conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel. The word he used to con- is conduct is the word conduct yourself as a citizen. And he uses that noun form back in in chapter 4 later on. You are citizens of, you know, heaven. You have a heavenly citizenship. So he says conduct yourselves as a Christian citizen. Certainly we have responsibilities as an earthly citizen to our government to conduct ourselves properly. But we also have a, a heavenly citizenship. And he says certain duties are required for that kind of citizenship. And he starts listing them like perseverance, continuing in the faith, standing firm. Suffering is necessary. Uh, this is going to happen to us. One, if we live long enough, we're going to have to suffer for the gospel. The apostle Paul suffered. He's suffering now. The Philippians are suffering. So don't, don't think that's going to be unexpected. We're looking now at... Uh, Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says another thing that we need as Christians is to be unified. Unified for the gospel, around the gospel. So he says in um, verse 1 of chapter 2, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any common sharing with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. I say here, grammatically, verses 1 through 4 constitute one sentence with one main clause, one main idea, the command of verse 2a. He'll continue on to say, if there's any encouragement, if any comfort, if any common sharing, if any tenderness... Then he says in 2 verse 2, make my joy complete. That that exhortation, make my joy complete in verse 2a is based on this fourfold appeal of verse 1. These four incentives are stated in a four-part if clause. So if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, if this is true, then make my joy complete. Paul begins to one with a therefore. Paul says, In light of your suffering as Christians, a struggle you have in common with me, that we talked about. The four if clauses each describe the kinds of blessings we all enjoy from being in Christian community, in a Christian community. Encouragement, comfort, sharing with the Spirit, tenderness and compassion. But only believers experience these as a result of their salvation. They, Though they are if clauses, they are not expressing actual doubt. They are su- assumed to be true. So these if clauses are assumed to be true. Um, this is a little hard to express in English what's going on here in the original text. Translators have a difficult time you can have. I was trying to study some in English a little bit. You can the the English uh, example, for instance, would be something like this: If you, if you, if this is a free country, you have the right to speak. If I say to you, if this is a free country, you have. Well, we, we it is a free country. We assume that, but we're stating it sort of like an if. Um, sometimes uh, you could translate this as a sense, but you kind of lose the the significance of what's going on here, uh, like in Colossians 3.1. If you are raised with Christ, set your mind on things above. The NIV translates that since there. Since you've been risen with Christ. But Paul it's the same kind of formula here. So Paul wants us to think about this, to contemplate this, even though it's true. We might translate, as surely as... You have encouragement from being united with Christ, as surely as there's comfort from his love, as surely as there's sharing with the Spirit and tenderness and compassion. Now, the appeal here is primarily, you know, Paul is piling up words here. It's an emotional appeal. Um, It's it's not intended to function as, you know, let's let's separate these four things and kind of uh, take them apart and analyze them. They're not so much theological as a, as pleading. He's just pleading. These are common things that Christians know about and share. So he's saying if you can imagine any good things from being a Christian, and surely you can then make my joy complete, he says, verse 2. Then make my joy complete... If there is good things in the Christian life, and there are, men make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Although make my joy complete is the main verb, as I said, it does not, in this instance, convey Paul's main thought. Paul's primary emphasis is that the Philippians strive for unity and humility. This is spelled out in the subordinate clauses that follow in verses, the second part of verse 2 through verse 4. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, one in mind. Uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Um... As he did in 127, that you stand firm in one spirit striving together, Paul again addresses the issue of the Philippians' unity as the one matter that concerns him. So he first encourages them to be like-minded. Remember we said that when we think of Philippians, we think of a church that doesn't really have a lot of problems. It's not like we spent last year going through Corinthians and we were just dealing with one problem after another. But we don't think of the Philippian church as having a lot of problems, spiritual problems, but they did have one that Paul emphasizes here, and that's the question of the unity here. They were not as united as he, as he would like. In fact, when he gets to chapter 4, he has to call out two women by name. Imagine, you're in you're at the church of Philippi. You're in the church. I mean, you wouldn't like to hear Pastor Ken call your name out. <laughs> would you? Nobody wants to hear Pastor Ken. Call call our names out. Hey, Bill, what are you doing? You know. Well, pa- well that letter does. That letter was read. <laughs> he does call my name out occasionally. He <laughs> Unfortunately, you know, but I'll get him. <laughs> so, um, uh, the phrases that follow have the same love, being in one mind and spirit. Explain what it means to be like-minded, to be united. So this is the one problem that's preventing Paul from experiencing the full full joy that he would like to have with regard to his Philippian friends. What we think, our mindset, and that's that's the kind of language we have here. We talk about the mindset. What we think, our mindset is important and it affects how we live. How our mind is working. The word like-minded is literally that. Have the same mindset. Paul uses this, this same word about thinking rightly ten times in Philippians more than any other epistle. We'll see it again in, shortly in chapter 2, verse 5 when he says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have that kind of mindset. The Philippians need to focus on the Gospel. Think about the implications of the Gospel as they relate to each other. Verse 3, Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Verses 3 and 4 expand upon the idea of unity conveyed in verse 2. Each verse begins with a negative clause that is followed by a positive clause introduced with rather or but, it's the same word. It's rather in verse 3, it's but in verse 4, but it's the same word in the Greek here. Um, Paul's main concern here is indicated by the term humility. Humility is a uniquely Christian virtue. This is very hard for us to understand in the Western world. Because our Western worlds, our culture has been so influenced by mm-hmm. by Christianity that we think that what we think about things, about being humble, is people how people have always thought. And that's just not the case at all. Uh, this kind of thinking that Christianity brings to the world is totally opposite of the way people commonly thought in Paul's day. Uh, The Roman world, uh, in the Roman world of Paul's day, humility was considered a shortcoming. Humility would be considered a weakness. Uh, Rome, like most ancient cultures, was a shame and honor culture in which strength is what matters. You've got to show yourself strong. The idea of being humble, that's just terrible. That's awful. That's that's a real weakness. No one would, would have that kind of attitude. So this was to be avoided. Humility was to be avoided in the ancient world and the Roman world. But Christianity changed the culture of the Western world and today it's quite common and accepted, you know, that humility is good. Now that's changing, you know, now we have all kinds of people who want to promote their greatness, you know, just watch the professional sports, you know and athletes are constantly telling us how great they are and how wonderful they are and, you know, and stuff like that. You don't see too much humility. It's not considered the way to promote yourself today, to be humble. But it wasn't in the ancient world, and this is really countercultural, what Paul is saying here. In humility, value others above yourselves. Paul, in effect, defines humility in this context by its opposition to such expressions as selfish ambition and looking to your own interests. Remember, Paul had already said in, in Philippians 1.17, um, the former preached Christ out of selfish ambition. Remember, he talked about how that he is now, when he's giving that missionary report in chapter 1, he said, you know, things have worked out for the gospel, for the good of the gospel, because people in the Praetorian Guard and other people know that I'm here for the cause of Christ, but there's some, some bad stuff going on. Some people are preaching Christ for the wrong motives, for their own selfish ambition, looking to their own interests. That's the, the same idea here. So Paul instructs the Philippians to value others above themselves. That doesn't mean that we have to have false or unrealistic uh, assessments of our own gifts. Not everybody's maybe as smart as you are. You may be smarter than a lot of people. You may have more talents than a lot of people. That's just the way God has created us, you know. Uh, Some people may not be as beautiful looking as I am. You know, I just have (laughs) have to face that, you know what I mean? It's just... You know, I just had to face it. He's wonderful. Yeah, see there it is, there it is, there it is. is. There's the truth coming. So Paul is not asking us to consider others somehow morally superior than ourselves. What Paul means is that consideration of ourselves must be preceded first by consideration of others. We're gonna we're gonna think about ourselves. Uh, we're going to uh, always be concerned about ourselves, but remember, Paul tells the Romans, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves. That's not easy to do, obviously. But if we do that, it'll go a long way towards making us unified and removing disharmony from among us in our relationships. Verse 4 not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This verse clarifies verse 3. This is how one considers the others as more important than oneself, by not looking out for oneself, but especially the needs of others. Most of the time, the major obstacle to unity is often not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion, but self-centeredness. You know, my opinion has to take precedence over your opinion. I want my way. And so shifting attention away from our own interest, our own desires, that becomes the real challenge here. The Greek word has, uh, in this verse, suggests a translation like, not looking out for your own interest only. It doesn't say that in the NIV, but it kind of suggests that, that Paul is aware you're going to look out for your own interest. Uh, remember the commandment that Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself it doesn't say to love yourself Jesus knows you're going to love yourself love your neighbor as you we know you love yourself everybody loves themselves but you've got to apply that same kind of love to others so we naturally look out for for ourselves and he insists that that this self-centeredness that looks only to one's own rights and own plans, must be replaced by a broader outlook to include the interest of one's fellow Christians. We come to uh, be here, Christ is a model for Christian humility. So Paul has been talking about what a Christian should look like and live like, and that. One of the most important things is this humility. And so now that brings him to an example, to a model, Christ as a model of Christian humility, 2.5 through 11. This section is closely tied to the previous section. There Paul indicated that the opposition being experienced by the Philippians calls for steadfastness, perseverance. Perseverance. However, steadfastness is difficult without spiritual unity. And if unity can come about only from an attitude of humility, then it's important to reinforce the critical importance of humility in the hearts of the Philippian believers. And what better way to reinforce this thought than by reminding them of the attitude and conduct of Christ to whom they are united in faith? When admonishing the Corinthians to contribute previously, uh, generously, for the sake of the poor in Jerusalem, Paul set before them the example of Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Similarly, here Paul appeals to the spirit of servanthood that brought Jesus to his death. Well, let's look at that. This is a very famous passage in the book of Philippians and uh, it's been studied over and over again. has all kinds of theological import. Uh, there's all kinds of books just written on these verses. <laughs> just books this thick. Many, many books written just on this. There are lots of problems of translation here and difficulty. Fortunately, the NIV solved it for us. <laughs> and I think the NIV is right here. There's been a lot of scholarly discussion about how to translate certain words here over the years, and the NIV is taking advantage of the, sort of the latest scholarship. I think they're right exactly in how they translate these things, so it's going to be easier for us here in explaining what's going on. First we see Paul's exhortation. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset, there's that same word, as Christ Jesus. The verses that follow will describe Christ as as the great example of the kind of humble attitude Paul wants the Philippians to emulate. We see his exhortation, um, and we see uh, the Christ's humiliation, the example of Christ's humiliation in verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 11 can be divided into two parts. Verses 6 through 8 speak of Christ's humiliation. And verses 9 through 11, Christ's exaltation. Verses 6 through 8 have two sentences controlled by the two main verbs accompanied by the reflexive pronoun himself. So verses 6 through 8 have two main sentences. The first one is, He made himself nothing. There's the first main thought. And the second one is, he humbled himself. The basic thought in verses 6 through 8 is that the divine and pre-existent Lagos did not regard the advantage of his deity as a reason to avoid the incarnation. So I said the pre-existent Christ. What do I mean by that? I remember uh, one of my teachers telling me one time that he was teaching in a Sunday school somewhere uh, years ago. And he was teaching about the fact that, that Christ existed before he was born in Bethlehem. And some people got very upset with him that he was teaching that. They thought that was wrong. No, <laughs> it's not wrong, is it? It's truth. It's, the, it's what the Trinity's all about. So we talk about pre existence. So the Son of God existed before he became a human being, or before he took on humanity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal. And sometimes we call that that divine part of Jesus the Lagos, because that's what that's the word that's used, remembering John 1 1. In the beginning was the word. That's John's term. In the beginning was the Lagos. And the word was with God, and the Logos was God. So he's distinguishing between the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, and the Father there. So we're talking here about the pre-existent Christ. Christ is the term that really means Messiah. So sometimes we, you know, use a lot some terms interchangeably here, but it's the really the pre-existent. Lagos, the pre-existent Son, and so forth. Here, so the divine and pre-existent Christ did not regard the advantage of his deity as the reason to avoid the incarnation. Incarnation means his enfleshment; the Word became flesh. He became he took upon himself humanity. That's the incarnation. Instead, he was willing to regard himself as nothing by taking on human form. Then he further lowered himself in servanthood by obeying God to the point of the humiliating death of the cross. So we see the initial statement here in 2a, who being in the very nature God. Paul trying to explain what could not be observed but can be believed about Christ's prior existence. I guess I need a verb there. Paul is trying to explain what could not be observed but can only be believed about Christ's prior existence as God. Jesus possessed whatever qualities or attributes necessary to make him God. Jesus Christ possessed everything that was essential to being God. He was truly God. Um, And so... This is an important point. We talk about the deity of Jesus, the deity of Jesus Christ. Uh, this was something that was debated in the early church for a couple hundred years because scripture has certain statements that may sound like that Jesus is not really uh, pre existent, he was not really equal with God, and so forth. Uh, this is a passage that clearly shows his equality with God. but And so uh, this heresy of denying the deity of Jesus Christ is called Arianism. Arianism. And uh, it comes from an individual... A man who was a elder um, in the church of Alexandria. He lived from about 250 to 336. And he famously denied the pre existence in the sense of, or the eternality of the Logos. He said that God the Father created the Son. So Jesus is divine, but he's not as divine as God the Father. He's a created being. He's not equal to God. This is Arianism. Um, created by the Father. Uh, now, Arius' teaching was condemned ultimately in various councils. The Most famous one, the Council of Nicaea. May have heard people talk about the Council of Nicaea, the Nicaean Creed, three twenty-five. Arianism was denied and uh, called a heresy. But Arians have continued throughout church history. So we have them today, Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses believe exactly what Arius taught about Jesus. They believe that Jesus is a created being, that the the Son was created. He's not equal to Jehovah. There's Jehovah, and then Jesus is created. This is heretical. This is damning. A soul damning. So uh, there are other cults and teachers who have taught this through the years. But our text says, who being in the very nature God. Let me see Christ's voluntary act of humiliation negatively stated. He did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Since one cannot take advantage of something one does not already have, this language argues for the deity of Christ. He didn't consider equality with God, something he possessed, to be used for his own advantage. In other words, in order to use equality with God for one's own advantage, one must actually possess equality with God. So the uh, teaching, the orthodox teaching of the church is the Trinitarian teaching, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each one truly God. The Father is truly God, the Son is truly God, the Holy Spirit is truly God. Then we see Christ's voluntary act of humiliation positively stated, verses 7 through 8. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, as God our Lord made himself nothing by taking the nature of a servant and by being born like other human beings. He did not exchange the nature of God for the nature of a servant, but manifested the nature of God in the nature of a servant. The word servant is actually that Greek word doulos we talked about, (coughs) slave, you know, it's a very low kind of thing. The next two participle phrases, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness are designed to indicate the manner, the manner, the way in which Christ made himself nothing. How did he make himself nothing? By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. The phrase taking the very nature of a servant is expanded and explained by being made in human likeness. The first phrase stresses Christ's attitude of servanthood, but the latter phrase simply reminds us that he gave expression to that attitude of servanthood by becoming a man. The word likeness, made in human likeness, as well as the word appearance in two eight is used primarily because Paul wants us to understand that in becoming human Christ did not cease to be divine. In other words, it's very difficult to explain the Trinity and the Incarnation to us in human language. And Paul uses words here. he uses words like um, uh, he uses words like likeness. Uh, in the very nature of being made in human likeness. And so you'll have to explain what that meant, human likeness. And then he says in verse 8, found in appearance as a man. Um, These words, likeness and appearance, allow for the idea that though Christ is similar to our humanity in some respects, he's also dissimilar in others. The similarity with us lies with His true humanity. He was truly human, truly man. In His incarnation, He was like in the sense of the same as. The dissimilarity with us is what Paul talks about in Romans 8.3, that God sent His own Son in the likeness, the same word we have here, the likeness of sinful flesh. His human nature was not sinful like us. And at the same time, he never ceased in his humanity to being equal with God. So these are difficult terms, and Paul is trying to explain to us how that Christ had a human nature, he was like us, but not like us in the sense sense that his human nature was sinful. He was not fallen in the sense of our Adamic nature. So he was God living out a truly human life. And all that, Paul is trying to safeguard that by this expression and the word appearance in verse 8. So Paul is saying here that Christ refused to exploit his divine status or use it as an opportunity for self-glorification. He took up the cross, not the crown, at his first coming. For him, equality with God meant giving up privilege. It meant humbling himself. It meant serving as a slave. It meant spending himself, obeying God, dying a slave's death on the cross. So being equal with God meant making himself nothing, as he says here, rather than getting. Giving rather than getting. And in doing that he really reveals to us the nature of God. Here's what God is like. Verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul picks up the reality of the incarnation and spells out how Christ behaved while in the form of a servant. Having fully identified himself with humanity in his incarnation, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the utmost limit, even to death. Just as verse 7, taking the very nature of a servant, is expanded and explained by the next phrase, being made in human likeness, so here in verse 8, the phrase becoming obedient to death is expanded upon by the next phrase, even death on a cross, indicating what kind of death Jesus suffered. Even death on a cross emphasizes the extent and depth of Jesus' humiliation, because death by crucifixion was considered by Romans to be the most degrading penalty. The Philippians, as Roman citizens, would never have to endure this kind of humiliation. They would never have to endure this. Death is one thing, but death on the cross is something entirely more despicable. So, when the Romans talk about this, they describe crucifixion, and the most—it's just awful. It's just terrible. One famous <coughs> Roman who lived, <coughs> excuse me, right before the birth of Christ, the time of Julius Caesar, Cicero, the famous senator. <coughs> A famous senator and orator. My coat there. fancy coat. A, f- a famous <clears throat> orator and senator. He talks about crucifixion. He says this The very word cross should be far removed, not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears and that to crucify someone was to hang him to the tree of shame. He says in another place, It is a crime to bind a Roman citizen. To scourge him is a wickedness. To put him to death is almost parricide. That is like killing your parents. What shall I say of crucifying him? So guilty an action cannot by any possibility be adequately expressed by any name bad enough for it. So this was a, Romans just thought this was was the most despicable thing. You know, you're up there naked on the cross. Sorry to say, but our Savior was naked on the cross. The most despicable kind of death that you can imagine. And that's the point. The Philippians would never have to endure this kind of thing. Now, no one in Philippi used the cross as a symbol for their faith. Uh, No one in Philippi uh, had gold crosses embossed on their Bibles. No one in Philippi had a cross pendant, you know, with a chain around with a pendant like that. Early Christians didn't adopt the cross as a symbol for their Christianity. That came, took some time. Because the cross was such a despicable symbol. You just don't find any references like that in the first uh, hundred years. It takes some time before the cross is considered to be something wonderful and honorable as we think of it today. Uh, All right. Christ exaltation. Therefore, verses 9 through 11, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. God the Father is now presented as decisively intervening and acting on his Son's behalf. Jesus' self-humbling reached the absolute depth in his most shameful death on a cross. But now, by way of vindication and approval of Christ's self-humbling, the Father has magnificently exalted his Son, to the nation's highest and graciously bestowed upon Him, highest station, and graciously bestowed on Him the name above all of the names. That is His own name, Lord, or Yahweh. Along with all that that gives substance and meaning to the name. All it gives substance and meaning. Now Paul doesn't mention the resurrection and ascension here, but that's assumed. He dies on the cross, God exalts him, obviously he had to raise him, he had to be ascended, that's kind of assumed. What name did the father give to his son? He gave him the name that's above every name. In light of the next verse, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, we might think that it's the name Jesus. But because of the chronological sequence presented in this passage, the giving of the name must have taken place after the cross. That is, he went to the cross, he was resurrected, he ascended, God exalted him and has given him as a result of that, this name. So, uh, since the giving of his name came after the cross, we can rule out the identity of the name in view here as being Jesus since he was given this name at his birth remember but after he considered this an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said Joseph son of David don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit she'll give birth and you to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins A more likely identification of the name is Lord. The equivalent many times of the Old Testament Yahweh. This is supported by the thought of verse 11. And every tongue acknowledges that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what I'm arguing here is that God gives him his own name here. Um... This exaltation and uh, giving of this name is expressed clearly here in Acts 2.33-36. Exalted to the right hand. This is Peter speaking on the day of Pentecost. Exalted to the right hand of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. That is, Jesus did. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. So what Peter is quoting here is Psalm 110 verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, set at my right." Uh, the Lord said to my Lord, at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet." Remember, Pastor Ken talked about this. I think last week when he was talking about uh, taking the Lord's name in vain and so forth. So when we look at our Bibles in the Old Testament the name Lord actually designates two different Hebrew words. He talked about this. So when you see it in kind of all caps here, that's the name Yahweh or sometimes Jehovah. And it's God's personal name. It's a, it means uh, Yahweh. So it's a name, like Bill. Lord's not a name, it's a title. Uh, so it's, little, it's, little, it's not as accurate as it could be. Uh, Because when you say the Lord said, that's that's like a title. It's not a title. It's actually a person's name. A person's name, Yahweh. But remember, he explained to us how this came about. Because of the commandment not to take the name of Yahweh in vain, Jews stopped pronouncing the name. Remember, he said that his Hebrew professor, when he got to reading the Old Testament, and he would read in the Hebrew, and it said Yahweh there, he would say the word Adonai, which is a title that means Lord. And the reason he did that was that's what Jews did originally. So if you had a Hebrew Bible and you looked at the Hebrew Bible, it has the consonants for the word Yahweh, but the vowels underneath, the Hebrew puts the vowels underneath, is actually the word Adonai. Now today, Jews won't even say Adonai, they'll just say the name. And if you ever look on a website somewhere and you see somebody doing this, you're dealing with a Jew, a Jewish person. They will not even write G-O-D. They write G, kind of underline D like that. You know, this is an Orthodox Jew that you're dealing with. So the point here is that the Lord is Yahweh, David is writing and says, You know, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the Messiah. So the Lord says to the Son, in a sense, the Messiah, Set at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And that's what's happening right now. He's sitting at the right hand. So the point is that here in Acts, Peter is saying, He's quoting that and saying, He's been exalted. And he's sitting at the right hand. And he's giving him this name. He's giving him his name, Lord. He's exalted, and now he is the Lord. So Yahweh in the Old Testament is a name for God. It includes all three persons. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh, the Son is Yahweh, the Father is Yahweh. They're all Yahweh. So I'm arguing here that he exalted him and gave him the name that's above every name is arguing that he gave him his name, the name Lord. That's what we see in Acts 2.36, especially there, and I think it's going on here too. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, on, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The purpose of Christ's exaltation is that all beings might bow in acknowledgement of the name of Jesus and confess that Jesus is the Lord. Because verse 10 indicates that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, it might appear again that the name given in verse 9 is Jesus instead of Lord, as I argue. The solution to this is to reckon, the difficult, is recognize that as a result of God's exaltation, the man Jesus comes to be acclaimed as Lord, and so at the name of Jesus, who is in fact Lord, every knee shall bow. Isaiah 4518 through 25 which speaks of Yahweh is here applied to Jesus when he says every tongue shall uh, every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and earth under the earth every tongue and so forth here's what Isaiah says uh, well this is what the Lord and notice that capital L capital ORD that's Yahweh this is what Yahweh says he who created the heavens, He is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord. There is none other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said that Jacob's descendants seek me in vain. I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be be presented. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from a distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God. There is none other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength, and all who have raged against him will come to to him and be put to shame. All the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast. Since it's generally rational beings who would be thought of as offering homage and making confession, the acknowledgment of verse 11. These would probably include angels in heaven, people on earth, and the dead under the earth. That is what the Old Testament calls Sheol, the place of the dead. Because of what the name of Jesus represents, a time is coming when every knee shall bow before him in recognition of his sovereignty. This will take place, of course, at the great white throne. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before them, the throne. And the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Submission, I say here, will be expressed not only by bending the knee, but also by verbal confession. Even those responsible for the suffering of the Philippians, who now proclaim that Jesus, Caesar is Lord, will one day acknowledge that the Lord is in reality Jesus, whom the Romans crucified. Paul does not imply. That this is some sort of universal salvation, but he simply means that every personal being will ultimately acknowledge Christ's Lordship. They will bow to his sovereignty at the great white throne. Even if they're not now yielding to it, when they're brought before that throne, they will have to submit to his authority. So this ultimate confession that Jesus the Lord, Lord, that Jesus is Lord is apparently Paul's indication of the name granted Jesus at his exaltation following the cross in verse 9. The name Lord with all the dignity and divine prerogatives that this implies will eventually be recognized by every creature. Of course, the Son was always divine as to his nature, but the exaltation after the cross, following the cross, grants to him a dignity commensurate with his nature and far superior to his humble state on earth. Paul concludes with a doxology here. To the glory of God the Father. Recognition of Christ's Lordship fulfills the purpose of God the Father and so brings glory to God. Sorry to go so late. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together today. Help us, Father, to meditate on this important idea of the humility of Christ, the humiliation of Christ, and give us a, a, a feel for that, a taste for that, a mindset for that, that we might uh, respond in our own lives with a similar kind of thinking and acting. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.